This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Senjan. When East meets West in the modern day, it's not only cultures that can clash, it's also the past crashing into the present. Asians who've been formed by both cultures know this very well and are one group among many who navigate the conflicts of transcultural existence. On today's Peace Talks Radio episode, correspondent Senjan explores three perspectives on the nature of intercultural conflict in transcultural Asian immigrants in Western countries. Later, we'll hear from Chinese-Canadian psychiatrist Dr. Julian Shue, educated in both Confucian philosophy and in Western psychiatry. Dr. Shue offers singular insights on why first-generation Asian immigrants have a harder time acclimating to a new host culture in the West, as well as what their children need to go through to blend both their cultural value sets into a coherent whole. Also on the program, Chinese-American author Iris Chen about her book, Untigering, Peaceful Parenting for the Deconstructing Tiger Parent, and her take on bridging the gap between traditional Asian values and contemporary values in the Western world as a parent who straddles both sides. But first, we'll hear from Chinese-Canadian trauma recovery coach Sherry Yuan Hunter, who works intimately with clients with Asian backgrounds around the world to understand and heal the root causes of intergenerational trauma. Again, she's speaking with our correspondent, Senjun. What have you noticed in terms of how intercultural conflict might present itself in people with Asian backgrounds? This internal conflict comes from the way we were raised because our parents and grandparents were in an environment of fear and scarcity. So they raised us using that as a model. They were always using criticism as a motivation to work harder, to not rock the boat, to save face. And so there's a lot of traditional values that do come from thousands and thousands of years of Chinese history, but specifically in a very stressful, dangerous environment that's ingrained in their nervous system. So they're always coming at us from a perspective of safety. Of survival. And survival. And yet they also want us to prosper. So we're constantly balancing this fear-based feeling of I have to be looking out for risks and danger at all times. At the same time, we have to be achieving and and pushing for more and doing great things without a lot of accolades because, again, the traditional idea is that we should be humble. We should be part of the society. We should not be standing up and praising ourselves and getting praised. So when you think about all of that kind of pressure on a young Chinese child who is living in a home with those kinds of expectations at home. Sometimes they're also speaking the language and living that culture at home. And then going to school and seeing a completely different set of rules that we're supposed to be learning and that we're supposed to know in order to succeed in this world. So what's happening, I think, for many, let's call them third culture kids or multicultural parents, where we're balancing a number of different cultural norms, we're balancing different societal expectations on us, It's very difficult to be truly authentic when you have to play such a a strong role either way, depending on where you are. I think that there are many reasons why that's wonderful. We learn to be more adaptable. We learn to be more considerate of other people. Those are wonderful traits to have. But your question is, how does this then manifest itself? And the most powerful thing that we see 
especially with most of my clients, is what I call shouldaholicism. It's maladaptive coping mechanisms involved with neurotic perfectionism as opposed to healthy perfectionism. So a healthy perfectionism is saying, hey, you know, I can do better. I made mistakes and now I'm going to do better because this is what I learned. Neurotic perfectionism takes it to a completely different level. And that's what I see in a lot of Asian moms. We're constantly looking at ourselves and comparing every single thing that we can possibly compare to someone else who's better. So with that person, it's I'm shorter than that person. With that person is I'm fatter than that person. With another person, their children behave better. With that person is their children are more assertive. It's a losing battle because wherever you look, you will always see things that seem better than yourself. On top of that, there's also this idea that at an individual level, absolutely, that's how trauma manifests itself. But it's the collective trauma, right? That starts impacting us in a different way. We've seen that quite globally and openly for the Black community, the slavery in the U.S., Canada, North America, Indigenous experience, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia. But there's less about how that's impacted Chinese people, Asian people, because we're more seen as a model minority in a North American context. As if we don't have the same kinds of problems because we're high achievers. No. And by that very definition of model minority, it implies achievement without a voice. It's literally saying you work hard, you do great, and you don't talk. You don't cause trouble. And what happens when we have this person who's living in this Asian family dynamic and the parents or the, the older generation is treating them the way that they have been taught to treat them? That, that, that would be, let's say, right or normal, if you will, in that tradition. What happens when we take that whole experience and then we superimpose it with the experience of living in a Western culture where the values are different? How does that make things more complicated? And we see that so often. It explodes in different ways. Everyone has to make a decision about, is it the relationship that's most important to me? Or is it my mental health that is most important to me? And an older generation, our parents and our grandparents, they don't really believe in psychology. They don't think that talking about something is going to be helpful. They don't want to feel the pain. They just want you to do what they want you to do. They've done their time. They've suffered. They've made their sacrifices. So they have a set of expectations. And so it often falls to the next generation to say, well, hang on. I'm learning a little bit more about psychology. I'm learning a little bit more about trauma. And so I think I need to figure this out because I have been suffering from anxiety, depression, overwhelm, disassociation. And in suffering this way, there is something going on that I need to fix. So then for an Asian person, you see the ones who rebel, where they just say, I'm just going to be who I am. I really don't care what you think. I'm going to do my tattoos. I'm going to do my piercings. I'm not going to go to university. So you have different ways of responding. I'm going to authentically be me. You have others who and some successfully so, and others not so much, who say, okay, if these are the rules, this is what I'm going to do. And they go on to be the doctors and the engineers, the dentists, the accountants. Uh, and many of them you're seeing by the time they're 30, they've hit all their goals and they say, I really don't feel happy or fulfilled. There's something about this that still just doesn't feel right. Wait a minute, I'm living your dream. Like I'm trying to do what you want me to do. So again, some will continue on because that's fine. They're making the money that their parents had always hoped that they would make. And others say, nope, this is not what I want. And then you've got a whole bunch of other people who are like, well, 
I'm half doing what I want to do, but I'm still trying to balance having a relationship with my family. And I think that the vast majority of people are in that space of, I don't quite want to parent or continue the way my parents have done. So I don't want to parent my children in the same way, or I don't want to live my life in the same way, but I actually don't know what that is. And so this is where I often end up with clients, whether they have children or not, this is where I work with them. And we really then break it down into what are your goals? What is it that you want from life? Because how often do we ask that question? Usually it's just a societal expectation. I want to ask you more about the individualism that is really emphasized in the West as compared to the collectivism that's emphasized in Asian cultures and how you see those two value sets coming against each other in the body and the mind of an intercultural Asian person. What kinds of thought patterns might someone go through? What kinds of emotional experiences might they go through because of that? I love this question because a lot of our Asian friends are actually re-traumatized by a more Western approach to therapy because a more Western approach would be saying things like, be yourself, cut them off, don't pay them any mind. And when your body and your nervous system feels a lot of resistance to something like that advice, you get into a cognitive dissonance of that's good advice, that makes sense, but there's no way I can do this. There's just no way that I can do this without feeling like a complete, horrible human being. And that's because to do that in a collectivist culture means sacrificing so much more than you would in an individualist culture. In an individualist culture, to say something like don't pay them any mind or ignore them or even to the extreme cut them off. I mean, it's still painful, right? I don't want to minimize the pain of those who have had to go no contact and not it's not their choice, but they had to do it for their mental health. It's just that on top of that pain of doing that, Asian Chinese people are really fighting levels and levels of levels of cultural expectations that have been hardwired into us. There's the shame issue, the face issue. How can you do this to me? I now have lost face in front of all, all our relatives and our whole village. Face is such an important part of our culture. So to feel that you are responsible for the loss of face which impacts their standing in the culture, in the society. That's a huge responsibility to bear. You know, and I've been told in therapy, but that's not your responsibility to bear. And it's not as simple as that it's not your responsibility. I can cognitively understand what you're saying, but somatically, my nervous system, I can't handle being responsible for that. I can't undo that I feel responsible. In the work that you've done with your clients, what are some ways that an Asian person who's just starting to look at the inner conflict, what are some ways that they can start to understand themselves and start to work with that conflict or trauma? Whenever we don't feel like we belong, whenever we feel like we're in the wrong, we're on edge. We don't know where to turn for help. So one of the first things is really just to be able to acknowledge and validate that all feelings are real and valid. And that has to start with ourselves to start feeling safe, feeling that. Mm -hmm. That we shouldn't say, I'm not allowed to feel shame. I'm not allowed to feel anger. I'm not allowed to feel sadness. I should be happy. I should be optimistic. I should be cheerful. That's repressing. You're gaslighting yourself when you say, I shouldn't feel this way. If you're saying, no, 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 this experience is not real, you don't have a right to feel that way. Because we're internalizing something that has been pulled to us from someone who's in a position of authority. 
over us when we were little. But yeah. not only that, we intensify it. So we then actually gatekeep even more than the original voices might have intended. Why do we do that? It just becomes part of the wiring. You have a wiring that kept you safe for a long time. So a long time ago when the parents might have said, hey, listen, don't behave like this because grandparents might get upset or your aunts and uncles might get upset. So behave like this. Okay. So it worked. At some point in time, this worked. It kept you safer. You know, it kept you out of the eyes, out of the limelight. It kept you from being seen and then being punished. Right. So it's a technique that worked. It's a it's a coping mechanism that worked. And as things work, we start using it more and we start using it even when it isn't ideal. You can't use that same tool over and over again and expect it to work. And that's essentially what we've done, because it's, it's, it's wired in us to use this. You know, if I can repress myself, then I can stay safe. And that's not true in the long run. What are some protective elements when it comes to the young people who are going through this inner conflict? What are some things that can help them strengthen themselves? Mm -hmm. Everybody starts in different places. But like I said, I do feel that it's important to honor and validate your own emotions. From an external perspective, it really is trying to find a community for yourself where some things that you say are understood and everyone can collectively say, oh, yeah, you know what? That is actually really hard. So it's about your own feelings, but also having people around you support you. And that's hard a lot of times, especially for immigrants. You might be arriving in a place where you don't have a lot of network or you might be arriving in a place where there's a huge amount of network and it's exactly like it was back home. And so then you have to like figure out, OK, well, then that's superimposed on top of this new culture that we're supposed to succeed in. So the networking is a network of support, what I would call who's on your team to give you good advice, to hear you out hold space for you to talk and to call you out if you need to be called out or just listen. It's yourself and your relationships. Because as you develop your ability to listen to yourself, feel your feelings and learn how to get through discomfort, until you do that, it's a cycle. It just happens over and over again because it's unconscious. It's in your nervous system. My last question for you, Sherry, is if there are people who are listening and who just want to be supports, allies to their Asian friends who they see are going through a hard time, they're a little confused, what are some things that you wish you had when you were going through that experience? Or what are some things that you see your clients saying, I just wish that I had this kind of support? Over the past couple of years during COVID, when there was a rise in anti-Asian sentiments in North America, I actually had a couple of friends specifically reach out to me and just say, hey, I know we haven't talked in a long time, but I noticed this was happening. And I just wanted you to know that I'm here if you want to talk about it. But I see it. I see the pain. And I see how this might impact you. That was in and of itself incredible. And the fact that they actually then did a little more reading so that we can actually have some discussions and that they didn't feel offended or triggered by some of the things that were coming up for me that might actually feel like an attack on them. That's not how I meant it. And that's what was coming up for me. And then being able to hold space for that was amazing. This hold space concept, I didn't really understand what that meant until I felt it, until I felt someone holding space for me. And holding space just meant, I'm not going to be offended by anything that you say. This is a safe space for you to express what is coming up for you. And we can unpack it together if you want to, or I can just listen. 
So recognizing that their role is not to challenge your experience, but rather to let you have your experience without them needing to make sense of it for you. Or for themselves even, because that's the hard part. And if they want to help me make sense of it, I actually don't mind. If we're having a conversation and we're being inclusive about this conversation, that's great. It's when it gets turned to say, well, okay, but I'm not like that. Or as soon as somebody starts talking about I, that space holding falls apart. So to remember that they're there to be supports to you, which means that it's not about them in that moment. It's not about them. So I'm trying to hold space for them, but I can barely hold myself up. And I think that's where allyship can run into problems because if you are trying to hold space, it's not your turn. And yet you're feeling like, but when is it my turn? <laughs> and I think right now we're entering a phase in our history here, especially in North America, where it's the turn for many. And we really all need to be looking at this together in the workplace, in society, in schools, amongst friends. We have to be looking at this. Sherry, thank you so much for your time and your expertise today. Uh, I think our conversation is just beginning. Always. You are amazing to talk to you. Thank you. You're such a great host. That was trauma recovery coach Sherry Huan Hunter in Toronto, talking with Senshan, our correspondent. You can hear more with Sherry at our website, peacetalksradio.com, and Sen's entire interview with her at peacetalksradio.com. Just ahead after a short break, we'll hear from the author of Untigering, Peaceful Parenting for the Deconstructing Tiger Parent. It's Iris Chen with a modern take on traditional Asian values. Just ahead. It's Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Send John today. You can find all of our episodes dating back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. You may have heard of the term tiger parenting. It's been in the collective awareness for some time and refers to the strict authoritarian parenting style that is often seen in Asian households, in particular with Asian mothers. In our next segment, we'll hear from Iris Chen, Chinese-American author of the book Untigering, Peaceful Parenting for the Deconstructing Tiger Parent, on the different approach she takes to parenting and how some traditional Asian values can be better understood from a more holistic perspective. Iris begins by explaining one of the most fundamental of these values, filial piety. She spoke with our correspondent, Senjian. Can you talk a little bit about what is filial piety? So filial piety is the belief that children should obey and dutifully respect their elders, that there is like a hierarchy of relationships and a way that relationships should work and that those who are older or who have more power should take care of 
and lead those who are younger or who have less power. And those who are younger should respect and honor and care for their elders. And so it can end up being a very rigid system of relationships. Why is this such an important value to highlight or to scrutinize in Asian family dynamics? Because it sounds like it makes sense, sure, that the hierarchy in some senses belongs to all families, all cultures, but it's especially something prominent in Asian families. And why do we have to look at it more closely now? I think it's like what you mentioned. It's so foundational to the way that many Asian families operate and the dynamics within the family. And it goes unquestioned. And so it it ends up causing a lot of relational harm, I believe, because there is no wiggle room. There's just all these expectations and so many of the frustrations and conflicts that we have in our relationship are based on these unrealistic expectations. And so those are really things that I think we need to examine and question. Are these expectations valid? Are there different ways of relating to each other that are more fluid, that allow for more conversation, more flow. I think because this dynamic is really based on power. And I think we need to really question whether or not that's a valid way to see our relationships, to relate to each other based on power. And I'm I think that in my own experience and in many other Asian families experience that has caused so much harm and that there are much more relational ways of connecting with one another that are not based simply on power. This notion of filial piety and how families relate to each other with a certain kind of expectation or power, how does that get heightened when there's an Asian community or Asian family that lives in a Western society where they don't pay so much attention to that value of filial piety, where the Western society is already much more permissive. I think that definitely causes tension. What I've noticed is oftentimes like the first generation immigrant family are really trying to hold tightly to their traditional values because they have left their homeland and they're trying to create this new life in a Western dominant society. So they hold on tightly to their traditional values, whereas the younger generation is living in that liminal space between both worlds and trying to navigate their home life and those values, as well as the other values that they experience in the outside world. And so I think that does create a lot of tension where that creates comparison, where we see perhaps the ways that our other non-Asian peers relate or the family dynamics that they have or the freedoms that they have and compare to our lives, then it can feel very stifling. It can feel like we're not being given the autonomy that we desire, the freedom to express ourselves. We can't experience happiness in the same ways. So that's really interesting because I lived in China for many years and we taught university students. And when we asked them about their relationships with their parents, the vast majority of them said that they had really positive relationships with their parents, which really surprised me because my community of Asian North American peers, that wasn't necessarily the case. And so really seeing just how the social expectations of the world that the environment that you're growing up in can really affect how you relate to your parents and how you perceive the way they relate to you. In the Chinese context, a lot of the ways the parents related to the children, that was just the norm. That was just the way it was and it was expected and it was received as love. 
But I think when we grow up in Western context, we question a lot of that. It doesn't feel like love because we're maybe experiencing something else or seeing something else and wanting to redefine all those things for ourselves. And that can lend itself to resentment of our own families and our own cultures or confusion at the very least. Whereas if you are living in the dominant culture, for example, if you live in China or in other Asian country and Everyone around you has the same standards. Everyone has the same expectations to fulfill filial piety, to honor the family, to be obedient. All of a sudden, you don't question it anymore. You just understand that's the way that it is. And so it's this contrast when you see your supposed equals, your supposed peers have a very different life trajectory as you. That's when the internal tension starts to happen. But I think for those of us who have grown up in multiple cultures needing to navigate these multiple identities, I really think that gives us a superpower in a way to be able to challenge and question the cultural norms in both or in the multiple cultures that we are a part of, where we can in some ways stand apart from it because we've been on the margins for so much of our lives that we can look at these different cultural norms with different lenses. I think also with the Asian diaspora, there's also this issue of racism where you don't want to reflect badly on your people, right? So you need to outperform, you need to do well, you need to make the sacrifice of leaving your home country worth it. So all the pressure coming in from your family back home, from the culture that you're living in to be a certain type of like model minority, to not make waves, to be a good worker, all those things. And then also your own pressure that you place on yourself to appear a certain way. So... I think there's just a lot of pressure coming in from all directions. And you touched on this other notion of model minority and meritocracy, which is something else that you speak about in your book. This myth of meritocracy, where the idea claims to equalize people, to give equal opportunity to people who work hard. And as long as you work hard, then you merit the opportunities that you get and you merit success and you merit a better life for yourself and your loved ones. But what you say in the book is that it's a myth. Can you speak a little bit about why is it a myth and where does this idea of meritocracy come from? It's very much rooted in the, the myth of America, specifically, I think, where people feel like they can come to America and make a life for themselves and like a rags to riches story. That's a fantasy of America, the American dream. But I think what that ignores is all the systemic injustice that is embedded in the, the systems and the government of America, just the mythology of America, where certain people are allowed to rise in rank and to succeed and other groups really struggle. And why is that? So those who make it believe that they have done it based on their own merit without realizing that there are so many policies so many systems in place that actually support them in doing so. So I think just buying into the myth of the model minority makes us unaware or where we ignore the realities of the injustices in the system. And we end up, up 
upholding these unjust systems, whether or not that's applying for jobs or whether it's applying for universities or all those things. We feel like these systems are fair instead of recognizing that they are not, that injustice is implicit in the system and really challenging that false belief that their objective And meritocracy is something that does go in alignment with Asian culture, because my impression is that meritocracy is a value that gets picked up easily by Asian immigrants in the Western world because they're familiar with this notion that the harder you work, the more you merit your success. My question is, do you think that's the way that it works also in Asia and China? Does meritocracy live up to its own idea? I think there is some of that in China when I was living there, this idea that you need to work hard, that you earn what you achieve. But I think there's also this idea of guanxi. <laughs> and guanxi is very important in China. Can you explain guanxi a bit? Yeah. So guanxi is just like your network of relationships, pretty much, where you can't really get ahead unless you have this relationship. So Even if you are like a very accomplished person, unless you have an in with somebody at the office or somebody who can open doors for you, I think they feel more helplessness without those types of connections, especially because they always say there's so much competition. There's just so many people who are all trying to get one thing, go after one job title or achieve one goal. And they feel that without these special connections, they really don't have a chance. So in that way, it's a little bit different than the idea of meritocracy in North America or in Western countries. And there's also this parallel because in Western countries, it is also about who you know. And in China, it's that, but even more so. The relationships are just much more complex and interwoven. Like you mentioned in Western countries, it's just still the assumption that you earned your place without the acknowledgement of those connections, of the privileges or the doors that you had opened to you because of the networks of your family. And especially as immigrants, we don't have those networks as established in society. So we have to lean more into, yeah, working hard because we don't have those networks that can help us. So there's almost an over-dependence on the hardworking part. I wonder what that produces again in terms of an inner conflict in especially second-generation Asian immigrants when they feel like, well, all I know how to do is work hard. I think that's just so much pressure on them to perform and achieve and get the job and get the career and get the salary that their parents have worked hard for them to get. What I have noticed for myself and, and my peers is just a lack of wholeness in some ways where we're not allowed to be whole people. Like it's hyper-focused on academics, on achievement, on career, that the rest of who we are is really ignored, right? There isn't space to learn how to be human. <laughs> So I think a negative result of leaning so heavily on this idea of meritocracy, where I know growing up, I didn't learn a lot of different life skills simply because I was so focused on studying. That's what our parents hammer into us. Do well in school, focus on your studies. But when I went to college, I didn't really know how to do my own laundry. I didn't know how to cook. <laughs> 
there were like so many other life skills that I hadn't developed along the way because my whole childhood was hyper-focused on just doing well in school. And I think another thing that is a result of this competitive nature of meritocracy is that we don't know how to be good friends. Like everybody is perceived as a competitor, as an enemy, as somebody that we need to be better than. So this comparison, this need to be the best, to outperform others, really prevents us from developing relationships and for connecting with other people without feeling threatened. There's this scarcity mindset that there's not enough for all of us. So I have to really be careful how I invest myself and who I am friends with. Yes, absolutely. One other cornerstone of the Chinese value system is chiku, eating bitterness, which is my personal favorite because it's the one that was told to me most often as a child that I had to chuku. Everyone has to chuku. Everyone mm. needs to eat bitterness and eating bitterness is what builds character. It helps you to become a strong, responsible person. I would love to hear your thoughts on why this value exists in Asian cultures, why it's so important. On Instagram, the account Asians for Mental Health just posted about this, talking about stoicism and how it's really a trauma response. It's ways that the generations before us have learned how to survive in a harsh world where there was famine, where there was war, where there was oppression. And just this acceptance and this resilience, this ability to survive and to eat suffering, to eat bitterness so that you can continue on instead of fall apart and die. So it was really a survival mechanism, I believe, throughout the generations and just thinking about all the suffering that my grandparents had to endure and my own parents. And because of their ability to eat bitterness, I am where I am today. I can honor it and value it for what it is, but then see that I need to move on from there too. Because what this idea of eating bitterness does to us is it doesn't allow us to have compassion for ourselves or others who are suffering. Because if we just normalize suffering so much, then we don't feel any motivation to help change the suffering of others or to validate when others suffer. Because if they're suffering, we're like, that's just the way life is, you know? So I think there's ways that that stoicism, that hardness can really harden us to people around us, to our own suffering, to social justice issues and to creating less suffering for the future generations. I think it's something that I can honor and have understanding for and have compassion for and yet learn how to deal with my own suffering with more wholeness, more wholeheartedness, where I allow myself to feel, I allow myself to weep and to grieve, to feel depression, to feel lonely, all these things, and to find strength in the feeling instead of strength in the not feeling. This is such a huge turning point to find strength in allowing yourself to feel the difficult things rather than saying that my strength is in my stiff upper lip, is in keeping my face calm and pretending to the world that everything is fine. I mean, imagine how much courage it actually takes to be vulnerable. That's actually such a huge sign of strength where we just know that our love and our worth is grounded enough where we can show our weakness. 
to other people and not feel so threatened and not feel so insecure. And I think that's such an invitation for other people to be vulnerable too, to show themselves. We all have gifts to share. We came into this world with gifts to share. All of us have gifts. Just because we're human and normal doesn't mean we don't have something to offer the world, but we do it from a place of worthiness, not to seek our worthiness. It's because I know that I am loved and worthy, that I do know that I have something to offer the world, not from a place of, I don't know if I'm worthy. I don't know if I'm good enough. And I have to do all these things in order to earn my worthiness. I do believe that all of us have something to offer the world and it doesn't have to look in those typical superhuman ways, but just us being ourselves is such a gift. And if we could all realize how amazing we are and come from that place of just rootedness in our deity in some ways, in the God likeness in all of us, that's where the power comes from. And again, that's not based on our performance. It's just who we are. We are innately those things. And so when we can come from that place, all of us can feel more free to offer what we have to the world with joy and love and all those positive things instead of out of lack. You can find links to Iris Chen's book, Untigering, Peaceful Parenting for the Deconstructing Tiger Parent, at peacetalksradio.com. That's also where you can hear Sen John's full extended interview with Iris Chen. Now, in a moment, a Chinese-Canadian psychiatrist's take on how mental health challenges in Asian immigrants require a different approach. Stay tuned. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio show and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Sen John, and today she's exploring different angles on mental health in Asian immigrants and the complexity of the arrival space where distinct cultural value sets clash and mix with each other. We'll finish today's program with a unique take from Dr. Julian Shi Wei on what happens at the intersections between a Confucian Asian experience of reality, and a Western one informed by Greek theories of mind, and what this means for the treatment of mental health difficulties. So I've spent a lot of time thinking why I have such a hard time with my Chinese patients. One of the things psychiatrists and psychologists training in the West say about people still mired in that traditional culture, though we say they're not psychologically minded. And I think it's hard for the West to see how strange it is to be psychologically minded. What does that mean to be psychologically minded? So when we say somebody's not psychologically minded, we say they have trouble identifying their internal emotional states, uh, articulating their internal thoughts, 
doing a sort of introspection that all psychotherapies depend. They have a hard time taking sort of a third person view of themselves and look at themselves almost as an object, almost as a scientific specimen. But it's only with this ability to go outside of oneself, to look from the outside in, then we are able to dissect our mind, dissect our thoughts, dissect our emotions. And this is where a lot of the powers of healing comes from. This dualism, mind versus matter, this is very unique to the Western world. I think the Western world doesn't realize how weird it is to treat our own mind as a third-person perspective. What's so strange about that? And I've realized working with Chinese people, working with people from other communities, this is not something instinctive. This is not something that people not exposed to the West easily access. Now, some of them make the switch around really quickly if they had a lot of Western influences growing up. But for example, working with older Chinese people, it's very hard for them to make the switch that the anger is inside me. When you're training the Western point of view, it's hard to see any other point of view. But I've really come to realize this point of view is actually very, very hard for somebody who didn't grow up with this. And the Western power is, well, once we can identify this inside me, then we can change it around inside me. But this is a very odd idea to people who don't take this view because it's all in the world and you just got to change the world. I want to pause there and ask a bit more about this because I think this is really quite an essential understanding why people from the Asian diaspora community might have difficulty touching what in the West we would call your emotions and feelings and owning them. What might be happening if they experience those things, but they're not able to link that to an emotion that's happening inside? It's the inside part, I think, that's really, really hard. For example, what's the standard Chinese understanding of what emotions are, right? Qing. Qing is a very funny word. It also means truth. Qing is our emotions, but its secondary meaning is reality. And so, foundationally, Qing, what Chinese people defined it as, is nature in action. So it's like reality. That's correct. It is not only reality, it is ultimate reality. It is more real than all the rest. So if you feel something, even if you don't recognize it as an emotion inside yourself, you will perceive that as the reality. The way you get angry, the universe literally changes. So this feeling thing, there's no this sharp barrier between my flesh and the world. There, there isn't. It's human nature in action. We are fully merged into it. We live fully in our experiences. We experience fully our angers. That's what we are in the moment. We're very angry. Well, the first lesson in CBT we teach people is you are not your emotion. And this is the, the place where I want to talk about because there's this borderline in between this almost animistic experience of reality. Oh, you get it 100%. It's an unmodern experience of the world. And I imagine that... The people that you're working with who might be a bit more in the animistic experience of reality might be more from the older generation where they haven't had necessarily the input of Western psychology. What about the next generation after them? So your generation, my generation, where we have access to both, or maybe we're a little bit more steeped in the Western culture. So so people like you and me, Stan, we're, we're the bridge in the middle, right? We sort of die out after one generation. <laughs> the sort of experience you and I have is sort of generation one and a half. I find you get into third, fourth generations and I treat them as if they're Western. Right, because they've grown up in that setting. Yeah, except when it comes to family. That's where it's last to die. Let's talk about that. In the family, it's still merged. It's still one thing. The boundaries are, are blurry as hell. And then it's like they're talking with one voice. It's very chaotic, conflictual. One person's voice is coming at me rather than a bunch of separate people. So that I find even for people who are very westernized and in their jobs, in their view of themselves, in their entertainment tastes, 
the last vestiges of a very pre-modern kind of uh, way of being comes out. But we, we see that in the West too, you know, it's, it's the families that are all really entangled with each other. I think the Western point of view is actually a very hard one to take. It's very unnatural for people to take that. We're certainly not born with it. Kids don't have it. You have to teach this to people. And when things really get very intense, it's very easy to snap back into our more original, untaught ways of being, unwestern, sort of that, that kind of being. That's my experience, clinically at least. I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about the notion of eating bitterness and saving face. What do you think happens when we have these Asian values of duty, of family honor and academics, which are passed down to us from generations before? And these values now come into contact or sometimes collision with the Western values of individualism, self-actualization, originality, creativity. What happens to the experience of a person, for example, like yourself and myself, 1.5 generation Asian immigrants, when they have to balance two value sets? So I think there's two really important points to be made there. One is trying to understand uh, where the Chinese people are coming from, the original world, what it is. And if you have some idea of what it is, then you have some idea how it would interact with the West. But let's go to the second question first, which is what happens when they interact? What happens is a second teenagehood. That's what happens. A second teenagehood. So Salman Akhtar, one of the most brilliant writers on this topic, wrote an absolute classic of a paper. Every psychoanalyst, psychiatrist who have interest in this area reads this paper. It's called a third individuation. So the idea is that kids grow up, they have one phase of individuation, they realize that's a bit of who they are, and then they get into their teenagehood and find out who they are. So there's a second individuation. That's when they get rebellious and they start doing all the things that create problems. Yeah, so that's second individuation. And immigrants, we get round three. You get plucked out of your original culture, put into this new place, and then you've just got to just make up your mind, figure it out. So Salman Akhtar's point is that and it doesn't matter if it happens in your 50s. Uh, suddenly, you, it's a cost and benefit. The benefit is that you have all this freedom. You have to make up your mind for yourself, all these strange new topics, what to keep of the old, what to take of the new, how they're going to interact together in your life. And there really isn't a drawing board, right? You, you're, you're really just going to make it. So the pro is that there's a lot of freedom. The con is that you might mess up and you might find a new organization of your character, of new ideas of virtue advice that don't work very well. But you might also come into really original solutions that people are like, oh, yeah, this setup, this setup is good. So I think what happens, it's really a period of uh, disorientation and that every immigrant experiences, what is this thing? And then slowly, slowly sorting out the orientation in the new world and trying to come to some moral conclusion inside themselves of what's worthwhile to jettison of the old world, what's worth taking in of the new world. And frequently after that period of disorientation, we see a tremendous period of anger. Either the old world deceived me or the new world is evil. It's hard to get away from one of these two points and both of them make people very upset. Because if it were easy, then you would either stay in the old world values in the new world or you completely adopt the new world values and you abandon the old world. So those two are two possible solutions of many, 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 but those are some of the ways the easiest, stay your own culture ghetto or just assimilate completely. Very few people do one in the extreme, but that does not make the process easy. The disorientation is there and the anger is still there. The old world deceived me if you went into the new one or the new world is crazy, in which case you stay in the ghetto, you know? So a period of anger, so first disorientation, then of anger, 
And then if we're lucky, we get beyond that. Some people stay in that, but then it's a long period of making sense. And we're lucky the person comes to some creative solution for their own life that works out. And it's interesting because I'm saying these words and I know I'm saying from a Western framework, right? It, this is the process of individuation. This is the process of creativity. Some actor is very much writing in the psychoanalytic tradition. So I'm following his words, his line of thought, etc. But that is what I certainly observe clinically. And when I work clinically, I work as a Western psychiatrist, right? So these are the ways I make sense of this experience. And I think it's really important that you will have the awareness that you, you're speaking from that perspective, because I didn't realize it until you said it. And then I was like, of course. Nobody really realizes how weird this perspective is. But we have to see what it seems from a Chinese point of view as well. And this is the only alternative worldview I have actually good access to, right? So of all the Chinese traditions, the one I'm going to speak to is Confucianism. It's the only one I know in great detail. The idea is that we need to be humane, Ren, which is usually translated as humaneness. It's got two parts to it. It's got the character of a person and the character of two on the other side. So it's usually explained as two people treating each other as human beings is being humane to each other. So humaneness is what Chinese people go for. It's our highest virtue, which makes it very different from the Greeks who prize reason as their highest virtue. The Greek reasoning is how is humans different from other animals? We reason, therefore those who reason best are the most human. Chinese people didn't do that. We took the whole thing. What is humanity? Well, we don't know what humanity is. Is it reason? We don't know. Well, let's observe humanity. What is humanity? Well, every human being is born loving his or her parents. Empirical observation, very profound. Freud makes the same observation. Our parents mean a tremendous amount to us. So we cannot hold good, generous, loving relationships with our parents. Our humanity is distorted. Our humaneness is broken. And therefore filial piety from the Chinese perspective. Therefore filial piety is the highest of the virtues because our attachment to our parents is our original attachment. You get this right. And everything else will flow a lot better, which is honestly the same insight that Freud made. In the West, we put all the responsibility on the parents. The Chinese people put all the responsibility on the kids. So neither is very fair, possibly. But the, the Chinese people made a very clear insight, a very good insight. If you don't sort out your relationship with your parents, everything gets affected and your humanity gets affected. And that is what filial piety is so important. The second observation we make of kids, they love to learn. Chinese people have realized that humans are cultural animals. Learning is a distinct joy. It is our ability to participate in humanity. And so Confucius, in his first work, The Analect, starts with learning. Isn't learning a joy? Therefore, learning is our way to becoming more fully human. So this is the Chinese perspective on why these things are so of profound importance to of moral importance to, to our lives. And I think the Western person has a lot of trouble understanding that. And so they see these as hidebound, hierarchical practices of oppression, of trauma, and all of these things. And yes, all of those things are there, but that's not why they're there. And that's not the only things that they are. For me, when I met with this conflict, I, it takes an act of memory. Why? The original culture, the mother culture is the way it is. And then that helps me get into why it matters. It's useful. And then secondly, I get into the process of what the person is going through, which is at least initially very disorienting and very upsetting.
So we have someone who's starting to touch this disorientation and anger, recognizing, you know, as you said, the old culture deceived me and the new world is crazy and I don't see myself in it. How do they start to make sense of that? You know, how do they start to go through this process of recombination of their values so that they can integrate into this new life? This is a very, very hard question. I wish I had an easy answer to it. Hopefully one day I'll have a better answer to it. But this is what I'm trying to work through as well. The reason I spent so much time reading. So I'm weird, right? So you know that. I came here at seven years old. Uh, somehow I picked up all the old classics and figured out classical Chinese and, and did all of that. That's why you are unique amongst all of the Asian people that I know is that you have pillars in both of these cultures. But I, the, the, honestly, the only reason I did that is to do this task that you put in front of me, right? And you ask how do people make sense of it? I can tell you a little bit how I make sense of it. I was able to not get angry at my culture of origin because I could do this act of memory. I remember where it all came from and the rationale and the morality, and there are things that are absolutely mind-bogglingly awe-inspiring in traditional Chinese philosophy, moral philosophy, things that the West have not touched on, not even today. Insights like that shake me to my core. And then when I see awful sort of intergenerational trauma, I can start to see at least it's not only trauma. It's a corruption of something that was foundationally aimed to be really, really good. But that's all it is. It is a corruption. And that prevents me from getting too, too angry at the old world because I could see what it was for. In fact, I find it inspirational and into the new world. So I do very much of the same thing, right? I start to see how unusual the Western turn into this duality is. But I also see the moral impulses of what in the West brought us here. Descartes and what started from St. Augustine to Descartes to this inward turn, as people call it. And I think by this act of memory of both worlds, for me at least, I managed to make sense of them and that they were both rooted in the best parts of humanity. And that prevents me from getting jaded and cynical and upset. That's how I've made sense of it going forward. And to the extent that I can, this is how I help patients make sense of it. It is painful. It is the most terrible thing in the world. It is not only these things. So you spoke about the origins of filial piety and how that is a value that's emerged from an idea that it serves both the parents and the children to have a healthy connection. And that's why that value is expressed in the way that it is today, which might be already a bit corrupted, you know, where you have to obey your elders no matter what. That's not true, by the way. Confucius saw lots of awful, abusive parents and told the kids to stay away. They're very, oh yeah, yeah. The, all these stories get lost. It's, it's a very corrupted understanding. Right. One of Confucius' students was beaten by his dad with a large bamboo stick and the student took it. And Confucius was furious, furious when he heard that. And he would refuse to see a student. The student was like, why? I'm just being fairly pious. He was like, what if your dad killed you? By not running away from your dad, you would have made him a murderer. You are a son, but aren't you also a citizen of the empire? You would have abetted your father in committing this terrible trauma. Your absolute filial duty at that point was to run away as fast as you can so you can prevent your father from morally degrading himself. This is such an important example because it takes us away from dogmatic application of values and encourages us to see, well, what is the thing that is actually valuable here? And don't follow it with blind devotion. Don't take the rules to be the things that you have to obey all the time. Like Confucius was not an idiot. Neither was any of his great followers. <laughs> and what I really like about this example is that there's, um, first of all, there's a wisdom in it. We don't 
blindly apply values. But there's also a responsibility for the self in it, just as there's a responsibility for the other. And yeah. maybe in that situation, I mean, I don't I don't want to say that the child has more responsibility because if he's being beaten by his father, then it doesn't feel quite just to say that. But the child must have some awareness that something not all right is happening. Terrible is happening. And to ask, well, what is good? You know, what is good and right for me to do for myself? And to also see the higher character that's possible in, in his father. Precisely. So Chinese people classically always have these concepts of like, stupid loyalty, and stupid piety, and you don't want to go there, right? These are flexible moral concepts. There's a practical wisdom to how to act it out about this, having to obey, having to absorb. No, I actually get quite upset when Western people say Chinese people are not individualist. The philosophical innovations made in Chinese society throughout the year are incredibly individualistic. Like you've seen one way, Chinese people are the most individualistic people in the world. Because Chinese people from a very ancient time says, trust your moral instincts. Trust your moral instincts almost to the exclusion, like really trust it. Doesn't matter what the world's telling you. You got to look inside and you test out for yourself these moral instincts. In fact, that's what Mahayana Buddhism took from Confucianism, this internal test. I don't care what the Buddha says. I care about my own moral instincts. Does it actually match up with what the Buddha? And so even that, that kid in that moment has this moral feelings inside him of what's right and wrong. And following that is of the highest importance. You got to run from your dad because there's three filial impieties. That's the, the worst sort of sense. Like the third one is very different today. It's like, if you don't have a kid, it's considered, you know, because your lineage dies. Uh, we get, you know, that's a separate thing. But the first filial impiety is if you're failure in life and your parents have to worry about you and support you and all of that, even when they're very, very old. But the second impiety is silly obedience. You distort yourself in order to obey them, and you, you let your parents fall into immorality. That, that's a second great impiety. And so if you have a sophisticated understanding of where all this stuff comes from, uh, you end up respecting it a little bit more. Cultivating your own moral spine so that you can stand up against immorality. Absolutely. That's all of Chinese self-cultivation. Absolutely. And you see how this is not just something that happens inside me. This is not the movement of atoms or emotions. This is something to do between me and the world and the path of the world, the Tao of the world goes through me. And then that stiffens my moral spark. You see, it's not an act that's private and just inside me. It's about me and the world. That was psychiatrist, Dr. Julian Chiyue on a Zoom line from Montreal, talking to our correspondent, Senjian. You can find out more information on him and all our guests at peacetalksradio.com. That's where you can hear Sense complete interviews with all of our guests. That's where you can also go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. See photos of our guests, read and share transcripts, sign up for our podcast, and make a donation to keep this program going into the future, all at peacetalksradio.com. By the way, you can hear more stories featuring contemporary Asian experiences on Senjian's podcast called Beyond Asian, Stories of the Third Culture online at beyondasian.com. Support comes from listeners like you and also the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund. Nola Days Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Senjan, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to, and thanks for supporting Peace Talks Radio. <laughs>